Welcome to First Takes, your weekly discussion here at First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Really excited to have our guests with us here today, welcoming in t- uh, into our time together uh, Joe Riley, Dr. Joe Riley, and Dr. Claudia Williamson Kramer to talk about our new midweek series. Midweek is one of our programs here at First Pres on Wednesday evenings where we come together for a time of a meal and then um, uh, learning and teaching. And Claudia and Joe will be teaching us this semester, and our topic will be how the Bible won the West, understanding and passing on an inheritance of flourishing. So uh, without further ado, let me introduce Joe and Claudia, and let's start with you, Claudia. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, family, and what you're doing, and um, all that kind of good stuff. Thank you, Gabe. Thanks for having me, and I'm looking forward to this midweek session and what we can accomplish. A little bit about myself. I grew up in West Virginia. I went to Marshall for undergrad and West Virginia University where I studied economics all the way through. I got my PhD at WVU and I kind of bounced around. I did a postdoc at NYU and then uh, before coming to UTC as a professor, I was at Mississippi State for eight years. And so I came to Chattanooga during 2020, so during COVID. Uh, It was a great position here called the Probasco Distinguished Chair Free Enterprise and it perfectly aligns with uh, things I want to accomplish in my career, but then also um, a lot of values and um, kind of long-run goals that I see that we can kind of bridge between a university like UTC and our city, um, Chattanooga. Bonus in moving here was that I met my husband, and now we have one daughter and we're expecting a son. Awesome. I love it. Praise God for that. Dr. Riley, Joe Riley, welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I think Claudia and I are going to have a competition to see who's from the most hillbilly background between uh, <laughs> West Virginia and, uh, and a, a small town about an hour north of here called Etowah that I grew up in. Uh, but grew up there uh, on and around farms. I uh, got a scholarship, went to the University of Virginia on an ROTC scholarship uh, as undergrad. Uh, started studying China, got really interested in uh, in China, and in particular saw that they posed, in my view at the time, even though it was not popular then, uh, the biggest threat to the U.S., and so spent a lot of time studying there. Uh, on the backside of uh, undergrad, won a scholarship called the Rhodes Scholarship uh, that took me over to Oxford in the U.K. Uh, that's where I met my wife, Rachel. Uh, I tell people she's from South Carolina, and uh, so... <laughs> So, yes, she's from the elect, and I do get the crazy garnet uh, colors in our house. Uh, but uh, she, uh, I, I tell people the only way, reason I got Rachel's because I was the only Southern Christian conservative in Oxford at the time. <laughs> so she had no other options. But uh, she was doing her master's and doctorate on Chinese social policy. Uh, I was doing mine on Chinese kind of foreign policy. Uh, and uh, so then came after finished the army only gave me two years to do my master's and doctorate so I had to move fast uh, and then came back and uh, actually funny story on my first day of my doctorate so at Oxford you do all your coursework and the master's and then the doctorate is just writing your dissertation and so I submitted mine on the first day of the doctor uh, the PhD program <laughs> And they said, you can't do that. And I said, well, I don't see where. And then they you know, came up with some rule on why I had to stay at least a year. So then I went back to do research. But actually, I was just going to ranger school, had a deployment and everything else, and then uh, just resubmitted my paperwork a year later. 
Um, but so then did did the kind of China thing at Oxford as well. Interviewed a lot of senior foreign policy makers from the Reagan administration, Bush 41, Clinton, and Bush 43, and, and Obama. And then you had kind of built up a reputation, for better or worse, of being a China hawk at the time. Uh, then when the Trump administration came into power, they were obviously much more hawkish on China than previous administrations. Um, I was um, in Afghanistan. Then while I was in Ukraine, uh, they decided to pull me back to the White House. And so I went and served as... Uh, the director for Indo-Pacific Security on the National Security Council, uh, where my kind of primary task was uh, uh, to combat China's malign influence in the Pacific. And so I led our uh, kind of whole of government approach on, uh, as I would call it, chicken, uh, kicking the chai comms in the shins each day, or trying to. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was actually fun that the, uh, the, one, of the, one of my Chinese counterparts came in one day and I was calling the chai comms, and he got really angry. Uh, and I said, well, uh, you know, you can call me an AMCAP anytime you want to. I'm very proud to be an American <laughs> capitalist. <laughs> and reminded him that if I called back to Beijing and told him that, told them that he was either ashamed of being Chinese or communist, uh, that his whole family would be uh, enjoying a retreat in a labor camp in Xinjiang. So, uh, so anyway, so that was... It's a good motivation. Yeah, and so yeah. then after, after the Trump administration was over with, even though I was still in, in uniform... You know, I think the incoming administration knew pretty clearly where I sat on those sorts of issues and was not in line with their uh, viewpoint of China. And so I left the administration, came back here, uh, got out of the Army, and I'd started a company while I was in the Army called Patriot Family Homes that primarily uh, provides short-term rental properties like Airbnbs and VRBOs, but really focused around providing that around military bases because families are constantly coming and going and have a need for these kind of shorter-term furnished accommodations. Um, so back here in Chattanooga now, we run that. Rachel and I uh, then purchased the farm uh, just about 12 minutes outside of town uh, where we raise cattle, hogs, chickens, uh, goats, uh, honeybees. <laughs> you, you name it is our own little smorgasbord. And, uh, and so we, we love doing that, and, and we're particularly happy that you know, the city limits go all the way around it. So we're just outside the People's Republic of Chattanooga's uh, reach <laughs> uh, from a zoning perspective, uh, and our little island of freedom there. So. Oh, that's great. Wonderful. Well, as we jump into this, before we talk about what we're going to be uh, looking at on Wednesday nights, I'd like to ask this question, just because I think um, both of you all have been in pretty upper-level academia, not pretty, very upper-level academia uh, and academic studies. As Christians in that environment, um, how did you guys feed your faith? Um, what was it like to be a Christian in that environment? Let's start with you, Joe. Um, we were actually just talking as a First Press connection. You know, one of the churches that we support in the UK um, uh, now meets out of a building that used to be a restaurant. And that restaurant uh, was where, you know, when, when we got to Oxford, the Rhodes community in particular is just, they make, you know, wokeism look like, uh, look like session from a, you know, liberal conservative standpoint. <laughs> and uh, so... You know, there was not a large community, or any community really for that matter, of believers uh, really at, at the university in any of our programs, or certainly in the kind of in the Rhodes community. And so, um, you know, a couple friends of ours started doing a Bible study, and the Bible study grew, and we actually met there at Bill's. And fast forward now, Bill's is a restaurant shut down, but that's now the church that Andy has, and so that's really cool to see that uh, evolution. But, um, you know, academia treats... Um, 
you know, treats Christianity, particularly in the social sciences, as like a quaint artifact from some, you know, that really should be relegated to history and treated with even more skepticism than uh, any of the other major world religions. Um, and so, you know, it's not a, you know, conducive environment for sure, but that being able to kind of confront that environment and find a few compatriots to get in the foxhole with you is actually really reinforcing uh, in terms of thinking about, in terms of clarifying how you view the world and puts you, you know, kind of on your uh, offensive each day to go in and defend what you believe and why you believe it. Um, and so I find that, you know, really interesting. And in the, the UK in particular, I mean, w- was just like unbelievable to them that you would dare admit, you know, be a Christian in the first place, but then <laughs> admit that you were a Christian in an academic setting at Oxford, of all places, you know. And I said, yeah, that's unbelievable, considering that we're having the pub, you know, at the Eagle and Child where <laughs> the Inklings met. What an what a inconceivable notion that uh, people at Oxford would have a view of faith uh, that is biblically centered, and that that could even more shockingly inform how they think about the world and how they think about their studies and how they integrate those two. Uh, and so I think that's what will be really interesting in this session, too, in this series, too, is, you know, the, you know, again, as audacious as it might be in that environment to believe uh, in God and to believe that the Bible is God's inerrant word, the idea that that belief would in any way transcend into your professional you know, uh, work from an academic standpoint was just, you know, crazy. But the Bible does speak to that. Does the Bible, you know, have something to say on every single individual policy that it's black and white, you know, the government should tax at this percentage rate versus this percentage rate, and you should have this sales tax versus this income tax? No. But it does give us very clear guidance and principles that is God's view of not just how we relate to Him, but how we relate to one another and, and, and to others uh, through society in the form of small you know, city governments, in the form of states and federal and, and, and even international policy. And so really excited to kind of tease out what the Bible has to say about, again, not just how we live our lives and our faith, but how we allow our faith to inform our view of various policy issues and to be comfortable as Christians that not only is that a valid point uh, of reference when thinking about these matters, but is actually the defining point of reference from which we should approach these questions. That's wonderful. And Claudia, as you and I uh, first met and and met your husband and and heard you were doing economics, that's been one of my longtime side research interests in, in the fields I've worked in. But uh, I love that we've got both y'all here with, uh, in many ways, very different academic interests and research areas, but but both a, a, a kind of a strange place to find Bible-believing Christians. And so what was it like for you when you were doing your work? Claudia? My experience has been somewhat different, and I have two potential explanations. One, most of my career and then studies have been at Southern institutions, Southern public institutions. And so I never really confronted much hostility or 
issues in terms of any sorts of discussions and it would you know different moral issues would come up and that would naturally lead to different religious beliefs so from when i was a student until then transitioning into being a professor again um, before coming to tennessee uh, i was at mississippi and so most of again your student body it's a public institution so most of the students are from mississippi and even if they're not currently going to church they have been raised most of them in an environment, at least of respecting <clears throat> those sorts of beliefs. So I didn't necessarily have that experience and even with other faculty. And so my explanation for why faculty <clears throat> in an economics department maybe wouldn't push back as much is because economics is what we call a value-free discipline. Now that maybe is offensive to certain people that claim to hold you know, very strong values. But what we mean by that is that's not what we're evaluating. Um, the other phrase that we use oftentimes, and I'm sure in my upcoming um, classes that I will teach, is that you will hear me say that um, value is subjective, which means we allow all individuals, that's what we study, we study human behavior, we're studying um, you know, individual behavior, we allow those individuals to hold whatever values they want to have. That is not what economics is about. That is not the question. That is, as I tell my students, that's not on the table. So the way that we frame our analysis is what we call means-ends analysis. So you define the end, whatever it may be. You know, a Bible-thumping Christian, great. What goals do you have? What do you want to achieve by that? So then we as economists evaluate the means, not the ends. And so I think because I've been around mostly economists and I've also always been in a business school where all other business disciplines come out of economics, even if they don't want to admit that, they are still influenced somewhat by having some baseline respect for others of getting to find whatever their value system is and then making decisions from that. And so that is my guess as to why my my experience is, is maybe different, again, being mostly at Southern institutions, but then also coming out of a discipline where, at its core, we don't judge people for what they value. That is not what we're about. And I think that that is probably one of the reasons why I was attracted to economics. Um, and it is very helpful then, I think, in trying to have hard conversations. And that puts then, you know, some people I think at ease is saying that's not what we're going to, you know, talk about. We can talk about it actually using economics, but when I'm teaching, you know, principal students that come in and they have no idea what economics is, we can talk about difficult issues, but it's not coming from a place of me trying to impose my values on them. And then that ends up leading, I think, to more productive conversations. I, I'd almost say, and I, Gabe, I'd be interested to get your perspective because uh, in many ways, you know, the more mathematical or, or um, objective, logical, you know, I actually find that sometimes more conducive to people with, you know, Christian views. And like the further you move towards, you know, uh, the arts, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the further, harder it is. So for you, who in many ways you'd think, oh, as somebody who goes and does, you know, theolo theology mm -hmm. and philosophy, that mm -hmm. should be very you know, warm and receptive <laughs> to, I don't know, the uh, predominant you know, yes. <laughs> religion. But uh, my sense is from talking with you and many others that that's not the case. Yeah, so one of the things I appreciated about doing a PhD at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia was, um, obviously it's a Christian Reformed institution, and 
part of the PhD program there, they kind of hybridize the American and European models. So there's there's coursework, and a lot of guys will do a master's and then just do their PhD as like, like the European system. But we were required to take classes outside of Westminster, and I took um, my extracurricular coursework at Temple University, which at the time had one of the top philosophy programs in the country for uh, for graduate studies. So I ended up the first day in a, a seminar on continental philosophy, which uh, in the 20th, uh, 19th and 20th centuries. And our professor was um, a wonderful uh, woman. She was one of the world experts on Luther, interestingly, even though she was not a Christian, but also on thinkers like uh, Martin Heidegger and uh, Husserl and Nietzsche and others. But the first day, we were all going around in this seminar introducing ourselves. And to your point, Joe, I said, you know, my name's Gabe Fleur. I'm from South Carolina. Uh, I'm a pastor, and I'm over at Westminster. And they were just, it was like a, yeah, it was like a, <laughs> like being in a, an exhibit at a museum, like, whoa, wow. there's like a Christian and a pastor. That's weird. They exist, so. you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she was she was wonderful, and it was a great exchange of views. And that's what I did appreciate. People have often asked me, was it like, them coming after your faith all the time. And when my, all my experience at Temple, no, they were, they were very fair. You had to do the work. Uh, they disagreed with me vehemently, for sure, when I made my arguments. But they graded fairly, and the class discussions were fair. Um, the one that sticks out to me the most is, some of y'all remember back, I think it was in 2011, that, uh, that shooting in Norway. Um, the, the professor who taught our class, she, she knew that camp very well. She had gone to it. She had friends whose kids were there when that happened. And uh, the philosophy of Martin Heidegger, without trying to put our listeners to sleep, um, he had a very particular view of what it means to be a human being. And a lot of it was dealing with the problem of evil. And so this class started, right? Uh, we came back that semester from that shooting in the summer. And one of our best discussions was about why was this wrong? You know, by what philosophical standard? Now, as a Christian, I just wanted to sh stand up and raise my hand and shout, you can't make sense of this unless the Bible's true. Um, I tried to restrain myself and be a little bit more nuanced in how I put it, but it was in interesting to see that. Um, and But to Claudia's point, there was definitely, and to both y'all's points, there was some hostility from some folks initially. And then the quaintness. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Why, why, why would a Christian still believe what he believes and do what you're doing? And so a lot of the challenges that I saw were in what I read, because I spent most of my time reading unbelieving philosophy and science and economics and all kinds of things. So thank well, you all for that. And um, I'll chime in and just yeah. add on to what Joe was saying. I think he's absolutely right in that as you get more into the logical disciplines, you can find that. But my experience in... Um, even kind of narrowing down among economists, more of the free market economists, I find tend to be more believing and open about it, which is fascinating. I think that, so it's, again, I think if we can and will throughout the, the teachings in, in midweek kind of boil down what, we, what do we mean by free market, free market system, and what tends to happen is a greater respect for individual rights, but I think through that process, even either turned to or were already believers, and so that mindset was more attracted to them, I find that a really fascinating correlation. First Takes is produced by First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Our theme music was written and recorded by Wes Breedlove. Our sound engineer is me, Dylan Thomas.